0: today's speaker. When the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, Prince Edward County abolished its public school system rather than integrate. In her new book, Brown's Battleground, Students, Segregationists, and the Struggle for Justice in Prince Edward County, Virginia, our speaker situates the crisis in Prince Edward within the seismic changes brought by Brown and Virginia's decision to resist desegregation. She reveals the ways that ordinary people, black and white, battled, and in some cases continue to battle, over the role of public education in the United States. Jill Titus is Associate Director of the C.V. Star Center for the Study of the American Experience at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. Or I should say, she will be the, Senate, the Associate Director of the Star Center only until June, when she will take up her new post uh, working at Gettysburg College in their Civil War Center. Before joining the staff of the Star Center, she worked extensively for the National Park Service as a ranger historian at Independence National Historical Park in Philadelphia, and Eisenhower National Historic Site, and as a curatorial assistant at Gettysburg National Military Park. While serving as a historian with the National Historic Landmarks Program, she helped create the Sites of Conscience Project which encourages stewards of historic properties to make their sites centers of civic dialogue. Titus has been a Massachusetts Foundation for the Humanities Consulting Scholar and serves as a district or state judge for National History Day. Her articles and reviews have appeared in the Journal of Southern History, The Public Historian, The American Scholar, and Civil War Book Review. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Jill Titus, who will speak to us about Brown's Battleground in Prince Edward County Virginia
1: good morning or afternoon I guess it is now to say after listening to that list of coming attractions I feel like I need to move to Richmond just so I can be involved with the VHS what a wonderful list of opportunities my goodness Well, thank you all so much for coming today. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to come back to the Virginia Historical Society. Working in the reading room here was really one of the highlights of doing the research for this book. As some of you may know, the VHS has a wonderful collection of oral history interviews done in the early 90s with veterans of the Prince Edward school closing struggle. I read these interviews before I did any interviews of my own, and they really, helped me to zero in on the kind of questions that I wanted to ask the people I interviewed. If you look in the index of my book, you you can see pretty easily that I used material from that collection in just about every chapter of the book. I really do encourage any of you who want to hear this story as the people who experienced it saw it looking back to go up to the reading room and spend some time with these transcripts. They're a very easy read, but the words have a way of lingering with you. Even though I'm here to talk about something that happened just 50 years ago, since it is April 12th, when I started to put this talk together, I was determined to find some way to work in Fort Sumter. Unfortunately, I really struck out on finding a way to do it gracefully. Prince Edward County's congressional representative on the eve of the Civil War, Roger Atkinson Pryor, was in Charleston on April 12th, 1861, (laughs) and watched the bombardment from the Confederate lines. A hundred years later, when Prince Edward launched its own rebellion against the federal government, white segregationists threw around a lot of rhetoric, a lot of rhetorical comparisons to the Civil War and to the American Revolution. But if there is a yellowing newspaper editorial somewhere directly comparing the assault on Fort Sumter to Prince Edward's decision to close its schools, I haven't been able to find it. But believe me, I've really looked. Lacey, if you ever find that, let me know. Many of us have certain images that we associate with the aftermath of the US Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown v. Board of Education. Images like this. The 101st Airborne patrolling the halls of Little Rock Central High School while a mob gathers outside, or riots on the Old Miss campus, or George Wallace standing in the schoolhouse door. We think of violence and hostility, followed by an awkward adjustment to token integration, and then finally slow acceptance of more meaningful desegregation. But there's a story that challenges this neat and tidy progression, a story that runs against the grain of what we think we know about school desegregation. For five years, from 1959 to 1964, one American community kept desegregation at bay by simply washing its hands of the responsibility to operate a public school system. Prince Edward County, Virginia, a rural county located about an hour and a half southwest of here, was the only community in the nation to entirely shut down its public schools rather than comply with the court order to desegregate. Though a few other communities temporarily closed a building here or there during the fight against desegregation, no other district made the choice to abandon public ed- the whole idea of public education, supposedly permanently. When the schools finally reopened, under direct order of the Supreme Court, County leaders did everything they could to blunt the impact of the restoration of public education by deliberately keeping the newly reopened buildings poor, segregated, and understaffed. It wasn't just that they made poor decisions or that they didn't have the resources to serve their students. They actively, maliciously went out of their way to make the schools as bad as possible. Both out of spite and out of fear that a successful public school system would draw white students back from the county's private academy and result in the integrated schools they had just spent more than $2 million fighting. But let's start at the beginning of the story. On April 23rd, 1951, the student body at Robert R. Moten High School, Prince Edward County's only black high school, went on strike a strike that set in motion a chain of events that thrust little Prince Edward into the national spotlight. At first, the students' demands were relatively simple. They wanted a new school. To understand why, you just have to see what Moten High looked like in 1951. It had been built to accommodate 180 students. By the time of the strike, it had almost 500. The building was so overcrowded that classes met in the auditorium, in a parked school bus, and in temporary buildings that everyone called the tar paper shacks. You can see them here on the right side of the picture. The students thought they looked like overgrown chicken coops. They were hot in the summer and freezing in the winter and the roofs leaked. The school had no cafeteria, no nurse's office, no locker rooms and no gym, although the White High School across town had all of these things. So after years of watching their parents push for a new building, receiving only empty promises from the school board in return, the students took matters into their own hands. They walked out of school and called the NAACP. Virginia's top two NAACP lawyers, Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson, were willing to represent them, but only if they agreed to one important condition, drop their interest in a new black high school and sue instead for the right to attend the same school as their white peers. After several very emotional rallies, like this one, and a surprisingly small amount of debate, the students and their parents agreed to the condition, and Hill and Robinson filed Virginia's first suit against segregated education. Three years later, the Moten High case, Davis v. County School Board of Prince Edward County would become one of the five cases decided together as Brown v. Board of Education. Ironically, in the meantime, the students actually got their new school. The last brick was set in place in 1953, but there was no progress on the desegregation front until 1959, when the Fourth Circuit Court, at the prodding of black residents, ordered the county to begin preparations for opening the schools on a desegregated basis the following September. Faced with this mandate, Prince Edward County's white leaders locked all their school buildings, chained up their playgrounds, handed their tax money over to a group of segregationists who chartered a private school for white students and walked away from public education. During the early years of this new private schools operation more than 600 different delegations from other southern communities flocked to Prince Edward to get a how-to lesson on building a private school system from the ground up or more accurately on how to convert a public school system into a private one. For that's essentially what Prince Edward segregationists had done. The new Prince Edward Academy served almost all of the white children of the county. Classes met in local churches and civic buildings rent-free until administrators were able to build their own building. Here it is circa 1962. Sympathetic members of the Prince Edward County School Board sold the academy desks and supplies from the public schools at a discounted price. The academy got its teachers from the public schools too, all but two of them. And students had the same classmates they'd always had. Thanks to grants from the state and the county, a spirited fundraising campaign, and changes to the local tax structure, parents paid virtually no tuition for the first two years of the school's operation. So the vast, vast majority of white children were able to continue their education uninterrupted, at least for the first two years of the crisis. No such planning and preparation went into serving the African-American children of the county. This is usually where somebody in the back starts waving their hand and saying, how is that possibly legal? Well, as many of you, I'm sure, know, in the 1950s, Virginia was in the forefront of Southern resistance to Brown v. Board. In 1956, the General Assembly here in Richmond adopted a whole package of massive resistance legislation that, among other things, made the assignment or enrollment of a child of a different racial background in one of Virginia's public schools grounds for closing that school. Under these laws, closing a desegregated school was legal, while keeping one open was not. This policy was overturned by the courts in 1959, a few months before Prince Edwarders decided to abolish their school system, but that was the state political climate in which they made their plans. In the wake of the court's decision, the General Assembly stepped back from a statewide plan of massive resistance, but not from its commitment to maintaining segregation wherever possible. The new approach, resistance 2.0, we might call it, accepted token integration, but took steps to hold it to a minimum. A new pupil assignment system allowed school boards to assign students to specific schools for a wide variety of supposedly non-racial reasons and a program of state-financed tuition grants allowed parents to send their children to private schools at practically no cost to themselves. To us, this might seem like a pretty airtight plan of resistance, but to Prince Edward's leading segregationists, it was nowhere near enough. Incensed by the state's capitulation to political reality, Prince Edward leaders decided to go it alone. Abolish public education, take the money the state offered, and use it to create a thoroughly segregated private school for their children. But what about the county's other children, these children? Did they think of them? Only in a very superficial way. Academy leaders did start the process of chartering a private school for African-Americans, but it didn't get very far. Members of the African-American community weren't any happier about segregated private schools than they had been about segregated public ones. And the new school's board was virtually a carbon copy of the Academy's board, made up of men who black parents had very little reason to trust. Board members didn't invite any community participation in the planning process or invite any black residents to serve as trustees. And it wasn't at all clear how the school would be financed, a serious problem in a community where black income was less than half that of white income. Perhaps most importantly however, black residents had hardly been sitting on their hands since the schools had closed. They had sued immediately. And their lawyers had told them, probably correctly, that putting their children in private schools could jeopardize their chances in court. No one could have imagined at that point that it would take five years for the case to come to a legal resolution. So black parents looked elsewhere for solutions. Several local black women ran schools out of their own homes or church buildings, serving children from the surrounding area. Many of these these women had taught in the public schools until they'd been abolished and ran their classrooms very similarly to the way they had when they were working for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Many parents tried to teach their children at home, and the local civil rights organization, the Prince Edward County Christian Association, partnered with the NAACP to set up a network of training centers for the younger children. These centers operated on and off for two years, serving about 600 children. Some of them were very similar to the grassroots schools run by trained teachers. Others were more like rec centers, focused more on bringing children together in a social setting, which was also vitally important in a rural county with no public transportation, than on teaching. As you would imagine, many of the children who had an opportunity to leave Prince Edward did so, I'd like to read to you a little bit about some of the more popular avenues out of the county. An unknown number of families packed their bags and left Prince Edward altogether, resettling in areas with functioning school systems. Others sent their children to live with relatives or friends. While some of the migrant children fought hard, sometimes even against their own families, for the opportunity to continue their education, others found themselves sent away over their own objections. When the schools closed in 1959, Vanita White Foster's parents sent her and her four siblings to Baltimore for two years. She and one sister stayed with their grandparents, two other sisters with an aunt and uncle, and her brother with another aunt and uncle. The separation was devastating to all of us, she recalled later. Facing the prospect of leaving home and family, even to live with relatives, was a terrifying experience for Foster and her siblings. They spent much of summer 1959 scared and sad, envious of those remaining in Farmville, angry at local officials and white residents, and upset with their own parents for placing education above being together as a family. Foster's parents owned a dry cleaning business, Master Cleaners, which provided a steady, if not lucrative, income that they couldn't afford to abandon. By sacrificing, skimping, and saving, they were able to finance their children's education at Baltimore's St. Edward's School but the possibility of accompanying them to the city was out of the question. This living arrangement continued until 1961 when Foster's parents acknowledging their children's unhappiness rented a home in neighboring Cumberland County Virginia. Every morning for two more years they transported Foster and her siblings to the empty house to (laughs) wait for the Cumberland County school bus. Foster's father Reginald White Sr. reflected proudly in 1992 in an interview that's here at the VHS that his children did not miss a day of school from 1959 to the opening of the free schools in 1963. This remarkable feat of keeping five children in school for four years without any gaps was certainly atypical but the strategies employed by the Whites were common. After sending their children to the training centers for two years Everett and Kula Berryman resolved to get them into school in another neighboring county, Appomattox. For a semester, the Berrymans, whose farm was located less than two miles from the Appomattox County line, drove their children across the line to catch the school bus at their aunt and uncle's home. When school authorities caught on to this and demanded that the family relocate into the county, they moved in with friends for the remainder of the school year. After a summer on their Prince Edward farm, they returned to Appomattox County in the fall of 1962, willingly enduring close quarters in order to keep the children in school. When I interviewed their oldest son about this, he told me that essentially they lived in an attic, that they they put up curtains and tried to partition things, but it was an attic. Like the Berrymans, the Morton family turned inward to find solutions (laughs) to the crisis. After three years at home, Edward Morton's older sister brought him to live with her. He spent two years in the integrated schools of Chester, Pennsylvania, where he found himself far behind the other students and something of an object of pity due to his reputation as the boy from Prince Edward County. Returning to the county when the public schools reopened, he finally graduated from Moton High at age 22. Still, Morton was more fortunate than his younger siblings, most of who received no schooling at all throughout these years, a pretty bleak illustration of the limits of informal family arrangements. Though many Prince Edward blacks had close relatives living outside the county, The size and limited financial resources of these families made it impossible to provide for all of the children who needed another place to live. Some children, such as Rita Mosley, whose mother sent her 120 miles away to Blacksburg, lived with total strangers. At least one experienced the sort of tragedy that many parents undoubtedly feared. In 2004, Barbara Hicks Spring told the Philadelphia Inquirer that her host father had regularly molested her. Spring's experience provides, or maybe more accurately, sort of encapsulates the agonizing dilemma that parents faced. Keep their children at home where they were safe, even at the cost of watching their future slowly crumble, or send them away in hopes of providing them a better life, entrusting them to the care of others, and taking the risk that they might be mistreated then there were the large-scale boarding programs the first one took shape immediately upon the closing of the schools and was the brainchild of two black ministers Al francis griffin and a i dunlap from nineteen fifty nine to nineteen sixty three many of the older prince edward students enrolled in the high school department of Cottrell college an A. M. E. junior college in north carolina the Cottrell program was a wonderful experience for a lot of the students but it was a substantial financial challenge <laughs> for the community despite the college's generosity in charging only half tuition for the Prince Edward students in 1962 the Virginia Teachers Association the VTA the professional organization for black teachers in Virginia launched the Prince Edward County pupil relocation project to arrange placements for interested students L. Francis Griffin stumped energetically for the project encouraging County residents to avail themselves of the opportunity Ultimately, the VTA found homes and schools across the state for about 100 children. Local teachers' associations and citizens' committees assumed responsibility for the children, providing lodging and board, and when necessary, raising tuition funds. Parents furnished books, clothing, and spending money, and provided transportation to the host community. About 20 children found homes in Washington, D.C. for a few years as well, and about 70 were placed by the American Friends Service Committee with host families across the North and the Midwest. Here are some of those students waiting at the bus station to head north into the unknown. All in all, however, probably less than 40% of the affected black children were able to get into other schools, and many of those who did could only attend full time for about a year or two. When people talk about the number of children affected by the school closings, you often hear the figure of 1700, but this is actually a pretty conservative estimate. It refers to the number of black children who would have entered the public schools in September 1959. That number grew significantly each year as more and more children reached school age. Plus, the 1700 doesn't include the white children whose parents couldn't afford tuition at the academy once they lost access to public funds in 1961, or who simply chose not to send them to school. They didn't legally have to. At the height of massive resistance, the Virginia General Assembly had abolished the state's compulsory as attendance law. Nobody got around to reinstating it until 1968. That's the kind of thing that makes a historian step back and say, okay, what else is going on here? A situation that was on the surface all about race gets more complicated as you peel the layers back. It's clear that the most powerful people in Prince Edward in fact, the very people who orchestrated the decision to close the schools, directly benefited economically and socially from the abolition of public education. These people were almost exclusively large landowners. What drops when you don't have a public school system? Tax rates, exactly, and in a rural community, who tends to be most affected by local tax rates? Landowners, particularly large landowners. Not only did Prince Edward's leading whites have more money in their pockets in the wake of the decision to close the schools, they also had more security. These were the people who needed laborers to work their lands, and without public schools, a future supply of uneducated, unorganized workers, both black and white, seemed guaranteed. Not to mention the way the climate of fear and uncertainty created by the closings worked against the emergence of new leaders who might challenge their control over county affairs. Ten years after the Supreme Court first ruled on school desegregation in Prince Edward County, in Brown, its 1964 decision in Griffin v. County School Board of Prince Edward County invalidated school closings as an avenue for getting around Brown and ordered the county to reopen its schools. In the wake of the decision, a few white leaders vowed to never back down, but the majority had little interest in being prosecuted for contempt of court so they decided to comply with the letter of the law for the next six years they allocated the smallest sums possible for public education the schools were open but they were underfunded understaffed overcrowded and about ninety eight percent black baptist minister l francis griffin the most high-profile leader in the local black community summed up the situation best when he told a federal official that For years, we have suffered the ways of peace and sought from the law the justice we have been denied for so long. We suffered our children to be destroyed so that the law might speak. The law has spoken. We have yet to see it obeyed. Through the tuition grant program, white leaders shunted the money they weren't spending on the public schools to parents of academy students. In the summer of 1964, the local board of supervisors, which held the county purse strings, allocated only hundred and eighteen dollars in county funds for each public school student but set aside two hundred and thirty nine dollars for each student at the academy they had pretty specific reasons for doing so the past two years had been hard for a lot of academy parents the tuition grants that many of them had relied on to make private education affordable hadn't been available since nineteen sixty one these grants from the state were still legal in the rest of virginia but a district court judge at the request of the NAACP had ruled that public funds couldn't be used to support private education in Prince Edward County (laughs) as long as the public schools were closed. Academy officials during this time did try to raise funds to lighten the load on parents. Some people actually thought that they were so heavy-handed in their fundraising drives that potential donors were refusing to give out of sheer annoyance. More than half of the student body received some sort of scholarship from the school, but for many it wasn't enough. By the end of the 1962-63 school year, so many parents had fallen behind on their payments that the school withheld grades from children until families paid off their debts. In what I find to be an incredibly ironic twist, at least one family borrowed the money they needed to pay the academy from a black neighbor. All of the scrimping and sacrificing was beginning to weigh heavily on a lot of parents who doubted that they could keep this up until their children were ready to graduate from high school. Large numbers of poor and working class children were falling through the cracks, simply disappearing from the academy. So it makes sense that the minute public schools were open, the supervisors leapt to resume the tuition grant program in hopes of keeping white families from using the reopened system. Lawyers for the black community appealed to the circuit court Arguing that county officials were essentially using these grants to offer an entire community of white children a segregated private education at public expense. The court requested that no money be paid out until it could settle the question, and lawyers for both sides agreed. But then the money disappeared in the middle of the night. Let me read you a little bit. Several hours after their regular August session, the supervisors regrouped under the cover of darkness for an unannounced meeting. Determined to ensure that no last minute injunction would block the distribution of the money allocated for tuition grants, and that no blacks would apply for money to use at out-of-county schools, they embarked upon a secret dispersal of funds. Sending $180,000 in checks to the town armory, the supervisors alerted a vigilance committee of academy personnel and county officials to begin spreading the news to white residents. While some members worked their way down pre-prepared phone lists, others fanned out door-to-door through rural areas where residents didn't have telephones or shared party lines with blacks. From 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., vigilantes rousted citizens out of bed, encouraging them to go to the armory, pick up their checks, and then go directly to the bank. Fearful that the black community would seek an injunction in the morning, organizers stressed the need for speed and secrecy. By 3 AM, 500 people were roaming the usually quiet streets of Farmville. Six hours later, the lines at the bank spilled down the block and around the corner. Police directed traffic around the pedestrians, and a spirit of jubilation filled the air. Residents clapped each other on the back and compared their, how did they wake you up, stories. Some sang Dixie and cheered the returning vigilantes, while others congratulated each other on striking a blow for Southern resistance. Several white parents whom local civil rights workers had believed to be on the verge of enrolling their children in the public schools, including some members of an interracial pro-public schools coalition, Citizens for Public Education, accepted the money. Many of these men and women were later ashamed of their decision, admitting that they should have contacted black CPE members upon learning of the plot. (laughs) Why didn't they? Well, Ruth Field, the wife of a Hampton-Sydney minister, explained it this way. The number of people on the streets and the tone of the activity just terrified me. I'm sure my neighbors would have killed me if they had learned I had informed upon them. Many attempted to justify their decision to accept the grants, insisting that it was an awful thing to have to do or a terrible moral struggle. The maneuver outraged black residents. Their lawyers immediately filed a contempt suit. Terming the action an effort to frustrate the exercise of the jurisdiction of this court by placing the subject matter of litigation beyond the reach of the court before the Negro's appeal could be heard and determined. In June 1966, the Fourth Circuit Court concurred. Citing the supervisors for civil contempt, the court ordered them to restore every penny of the $180,000 they had distributed to the county treasury. The supervisors appealed to the Supreme Court, there's some irony in that, I think, which declined to review the case, ultimately forcing them to ask parents to return the money paid out two years earlier. Though their initial appeal requested voluntary reimbursement, board members didn't rule out the possibility of taking legal action against parents who refused to pay up. I'd like to close by talking a little bit about the impact of this Academy First philosophy on the children in the public schools. The 1500 students in the newly reopened Prince Edward Public Schools had one guidance counselor, one remedial reading teacher, a second one was added later in the year, and one special education teacher, all of whom were there for one-year appointments paid for by outside funding to serve a student body that had not been in school for four to five years. And when local college students offered to start a tutoring program, the school board put them through one hoop after another before just turning them down flat. The cafeterias ran out of food on a daily basis, and college and career planning services at the high school were non-existent. Though some of the teachers were excellent, longtime Prince Edward residents who'd been forced to leave the county to take other jobs during the years that the schools were closed, several of the others, mostly white teachers, who only agreed to come to Prince Edward because they had no other prospects, regularly made derogatory and racist remarks about their black students. Even white teachers who truly cared about their students were in a difficult position. Administrators insisted that they keep their distance from the black community. One white teacher who got too involved with the campaign to improve the schools lost her job as a result of her unacceptable activities. The situation was particularly dire at Moten High where almost half the faculty didn't have the appropriate certification to teach in Virginia, and a substantial number had little to no classroom experience. Thanks to the years without schools, enrollment was very uneven. The junior and senior classes were really small, the 7th and 10th grade classes were medium-sized, and the 8th and ninth grades were so large that there weren't enough books to go around. Administrators refused to order more. Just wait till these kids start dropping out, they said, then there'll be plenty of books. Students were outraged, particularly those who had recent experiences in other schools to compare to. Many complained that teachers rarely collected homework assignments and generally let the students do whatever they wanted. Six weeks into the school year, one student complained that her geometry teacher spent 15 minutes calling the roll every day. I think he's more concerned with seeing if you're present than teaching you anything, she said, and I really don't know why he'd be concerned with having you present because he certainly isn't going to teach anything. To be fair, even the best teachers in the world would have struggled under these conditions. Their classes were too big, encompassing students who were working at grade level, students who were a couple of years behind, and students who were struggling to read even the simplest words. They had few supplies, no set curriculum, and almost no access to the academic support services that so many of the children desperately needed. One politically savvy student saw past the problems with the teachers and laid the blame at the feet of the school board and the superintendent. They could have given us much better schools if they wanted to, but what they want to do is get these kids on out of school without much education and put more in. They just want cheap labor. And the students wouldn't stand for it. Not again. Not after everything that had happened. On April 23, 1969, exactly 18 years after the first Moton High Strike, students staged a second one. This is the cover of that year's Moten High yearbook. It shows student protesters marching into downtown Farmville. There were immediate causes, of course. The firing of a popular young teacher and the school board's decision to re the enormously unpopular superintendent. But at its heart, the strike was a blow against the reinstated status quo. It was the student's way of saying never again. The strike didn't change everything, but it did prove to be a major turning point. In its wake, two black men were appointed to the school board and a new superintendent was hired. The governor of Virginia, Linwood Holton, instituted a minimum standards of quality policy that required local authorities to significantly increase the school budget. After the court revoked tuition grants again in December 1964, this time for good, white parents who couldn't keep up with the rising sticker price of the academy began turning back to the public schools, and a group of faculty families from the two local colleges collectively enrolled their children in 1974. By the turn of the century, about 90% of Prince Edward children were back in the public schools, which are now amongst the most integrated in the nation, with a population breakdown very similar to that of the county itself. The Prince Edward schools certainly still have their problems. They're plagued by the kind of intra-school segregation that tracking often produces, and by an overrepresentation of African-American students in special education programs. But academically, the schools are relatively on par with the school districts of the surrounding counties, and many African-American students do excel. The Griffin plaintiffs and their descendants have much to be proud of. In suing the county, they forced the Supreme Court to directly confront what could have become a massive shift away from public education. They're truly heroes. Nevertheless, the mid-century events in Prince Edward County remain one of the ugliest manifestations of racial bigotry and class prejudice in recent American history. With a stroke of the pen, the Board of Supervisors abolished a right long cherished as fundamental to American democracy, because it hindered the interests of the people who ran the county. Prince Edward County segregationists spent over $2 million resisting school desegregation, money that could have been put to better use, creating a system of first-rate schools that would have benefited all the children of the county. Instead, thousands of children suffered as obstructionists manipulated the judicial system to serve their own interests. Families were torn apart, old friendships splintered, and young people were literally driven from their homes in search of an education. Virginians now consider the 1951 Moten High Strikers state heroes. There's a memorial to them on the lawn of the Virginia State Capitol, a memorial designed to inspire other generations of students to take action, to change the world around them. Their story is a stirring reminder of the profound impact this small group of ordinary people can have on the world. But for many touched by the Prince Edward crisis, the scars caused by the closings still linger, handed down from those directly affected to children and grandchildren. Throughout the project, I was haunted by a comment one Prince Edward resident made to a reporter in 2004. You have to live the rest of your life wondering who you could have been or what you could have done with your life. If I could take anything from this project and share it with the people in our society who seem to have given up on public education, it would be that. I certainly don't have all the answers to the challenges facing public schools in the 21st century, but I hope that what happened in Prince Edward will serve as a reminder of the long-term effects of abandoning public schools, not just on children, but on entire communities and on generations to come. Thank you. You're all still there. Good. (laughs) I would be delighted to take some questions if anybody has any. Thank
2: you. Thank, thank you for your wonderful narrative. Um, Could you talk about reparations of any kind in the cost of legal action by the protesters?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I imagine that. Excuse me, that many of you are probably familiar with, with the state's Brown v. Board Scholarship. Um, this is a, a fund that serves adults, now adults, who as children were denied an education due to the events of massive resistance. And the idea really started in Prince Edward County with the editor of the local newspaper, which in the 50s and 60s had been a real bastion of massive resistance and had been a, a, a paper that and kind have of encouraged the white community to just stand steady, keep fighting, we'll be vindicated, we'll, we'll, be able, we'll be able to do this, what we're doing is constitutionally correct, so on and so forth. The new editor sees things very differently and, and has crusaded for state level reparations to those who were affected. And the original idea was that funds would be available not only to any person Whose own education had been disrupted by massive resistance across the state, but also their children and grandchildren, on the assumption that educational handicaps are things that are transferred through generations. That if a parent doesn't have the resources and the ability to help his or her own child with school, to teach them to love to learn, to help with homework, that those handicaps are then passed on to that generation, to the next one, so on and so forth. Um, the state thought that was too expensive. So the fund as it exists today is available to any person whose own education was disrupted by massive resistance, whether they lived in Prince Edward County, whether they lived in Charlottesville, whether they were in Norfolk, but it is not available to future generations. My understanding is no that, that the, the that that there was, has never been any sort of reimbursement for for legal the costs of legal action.
2: Um Longwood College uh, was at that period of time produced many, many school teachers yes. across the state of Virginia. Yes. Did uh, did the Longwood College play a role in any way in uh in, in their practice teaching uh, in, in the community, uh, I think in many cases at Longwood, they, uh, back then they may have had classes on campus. Uh, did that continue during that
1: period of time? That's a great question. Um, yes, Longwood, Longwood at the time was the state teacher's college. Um, and prior to the time that the public schools closed, a pretty high percentage of the students did their practical teaching, student teaching experience in Prince Edward. Once once the public schools closed, a lot of those students moved into the academy and continued to work locally with with the academy. Um, During the year that a public-private partnership, the Prince Edward Free School Association, offered a, a school in the community for black children, Longwood students were not allowed to teach in that school, and they were not allowed to teach in the public schools for the first five to 10 years, I believe, after after public education resumed. They were sent into, if they were not in the academy, they were sent into the school systems of surrounding communities. Um, the administration of Longwood College at the time wanted the students to stay far away from what was going on locally. They um, Yet at the same time, they provided a lot of support to the academy and to the segregationists. They often invited academy leaders to come onto campus to address the students. But when civil rights leaders would come to Farmville, when people like Roy Wilkins of the NAACP came, they were never invited onto campus. And even when they gave talks downtown, you know, on the steps of the courthouse, the Longwood administration would very, 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 very strongly encourage their students not to go. Um, there were there were students who did try to speak out. There were students who formed partnerships with some of the young teachers in the free school system, with some of the the younger teachers in the public schools. There was a group of Longwood students who tried to set up a tutoring program, as I mentioned earlier, and they were they were all shot down. Some of them were even threatened with expulsion by the administration for getting involved in things that weren't their business and that they shouldn't have anything to say about. There was a, an editor of the Longwood student newspaper in, I believe it was 1960, it was 1963 or 1964, who was so frustrated at the way that discussion of this was just being muzzled on campus that she wrote an impassioned editorial for the student newspaper. Her, the The faculty advisor to the newspaper was fully supportive, said yes, we need to run this. The president said you cannot run this. You are not allowed to run this. And so she ended up running a blank page with a little statement about it's really a shame that in a democracy we can't talk about issues that are of of great concern to all of us. And she just emailed me about a week or so ago. She She had found the book and she wanted to share with me some of her memories of the advisor that she had worked with. And some of the faculty who did speak out. There were there were a number of courageous people on the faculty of Longwood College and some on the faculty of Hampton Sydney College as well who did speak out, but many of them were threatened with losing their jobs, they were they were shunned on the streets of Farmville, they had you know lifelong friends walk down the street toward them, turn away and walk in the other direction when they saw them coming. So the cost of the cost of speaking out as a member of the white community was was very significant along those same lines were there periods of civil disturbance during this era and did Prince Edward have its local version of Bull Connor no it did not Um, and in many ways I think that Prince Edward was so successful in being obstructionist for so long because they were adamant that things have to stay civil. Things have to stay on a legal plane. We cannot have violence in the streets because it undermines our argument that this is not about segregation, this is not about racial prejudice, this is about a constitutional principle that we should not be forced to allocate taxes for a purpose that is obnoxious to us. So the um, there were a number of street demonstrations in Farmville in the summer of 1963, mostly organized and led by teenagers. Um, there were a few civil, you know, professional civil rights workers involved. Some, some students from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, came to do workshops about this is how you do nonviolent protests, this is how you respond in case you are attacked. But the Prince Edward Police Force, their, their response was simply to let people march, arrest them, take them to jail, let another march happen, make some more arrests, take them to jail, patrol the streets, but keep things quiet, keep things calm. I mean, many people would argue that Bull Connor did more for SCLC in Birmingham than he did for you know, for the, for the city's white leadership, and Prince Edward Prince Edward's law enforcement officials were really paying attention to what was going on elsewhere in the country. They saw how the violence that was used in Birmingham furthered the gains of the movement, and they saw how in other places like Albany, Georgia, where the police department's approach was quietly arrest people, put them in jail, put them in juvenile homes, do things quietly, Away from the streets, away from the front page of the newspapers, and you can shut down protest pretty effectively. So there was no, yes, so there was no, no Bull Connor in, in Prince Edward.
2: Yes, it may, I think it's timely to ask a question about politics at the time. Um, these days, of course, who's ever in power, the opposing party, has uh, pretty vocal uh, opposition to it. Uh, at that time, if my memory serves me, I think it, the Democrats were really in, lead in the General Assembly at the time.
1: Yes, and the Democrat was in the Governor's. And the Democrat was the in the Governor's.
2: Yeah. So, uh, what was the vocalism from the Republican Party, uh, or did they take it, or are they just, uh, you know, uh, bigoted as the, uh, the Democrats were at the time? <laughs>
1: Well, the, there, were, there were a couple of Republican candidates, um, namely Ted Dalton, who ran for governor in, uh, thank you, thank you, um, who <clears throat> spoke out against this, not that they were integrationists, not that they thought that Brown v. Board was a good thing, but that they felt that massive resistance was a disaster and it was going to produce consequences that you know, future generations would shudder to, <laughs> to imagine and it did very little for them. They they were they were sort of successfully lumped in in the public mind with extreme integrationists. They lost. And it ceased to really become a rally and cry for for the Virginia Republican Party. There were certainly individuals both Republican and Democrat who, you know, who dis- who dissented from the party line on this, but by and large they tended to be people whose role in state politics was was more marginal. I mean even the the, the, the chairman of the Virginia State Board of Education was the, the commencement speaker at Prince Edward Academy's first commencement in, in spring of of 1960 and he basically compared what Prince Edward had done to the the Spartan stand at Thermopylae and they said, this is one of the great epic stands of history. You are standing against tyranny, and you will go down in history for fighting for your principles. Well, they've gone down in history, but that hasn't really been the way that history has recorded their stand.
3: Here's how another city handled this kind of situation. In 1962, I found myself in Lexington, Kentucky, Mm. because my husband was uh, getting his master's degree at the university there. I got a job at the Lexington Herald, the newspaper, the city newspaper, and heard nothing about any problem at all. I wasn't looking for it because I wasn't hearing anything. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that anything was happening, and I'm sure the whole city didn't, or most of the city, because a few years ago, quite recently, the owners of the paper or their descendants, I don't know who, apologized publicly for not covering the problems that were going on in the city about race. And I have no idea how high up this went, whether it went into the city government or the extent to which all of this was suppressed. Mm -hmm. And I worked at the newspaper. I feel a little guilty for not having known anything. That's how successful they were at suppressing anything. And in fact, on a slightly different note, the administration of the University of Kentucky, which was a very large place, about 25,000 students, coming from all over the world, quite cosmopolitan in and of itself. The administration advised people who came from African or other darker colored countries, if they went into the city at all, to wear their native dress, so they would not be mistaken for American blacks. Yes, yes indeed. There were things brewing, but you wouldn't know it from watching TV, reading the paper, Mm -hmm. listening to radio, nothing. And I, I can't imagine how they were successful
1: in doing that in 1962. Mm-hmm. In Prince Edward, the the, the Farmville Herald, the, the 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 local newspaper was so one-sided in its its coverage of everything that was happening in the community that the, the young people got together and started a grassroots newspaper that they called The Voice of Prince Edward County that was circulated mostly to within the black community and amongst the more Liberal, you know, liberal white circles that provided a very different perspective on what was actually happening. It was a really important information source for a lot of people.
0: Were any of the white elite who, who did all of this chicanery and uh, stamping down of the ability for children of both colors to get an education were any of them ever held personally responsible were any civil charges ever filed against them for damages no they no. got away scot free no no
1: i mean they had to they had to face the people that they had caught they had forced all of this <laughs> suffering upon on a daily basis living in a small community
0: but they still remained among
1: the, yes. among the elite they were still were, they, were, you know, they, they were still on top okay. well, well into the 1970s. Things are different now, but and many, of the, you, many of the children and the grandchildren of these people see things very, very differently and, 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 uh, and in recent years at least have been willing to say, my, you know, my father, my grandfather, they were wrong, and I'm sorry, but no, there were, there were never, no one was ever held accountable okay. in a civil or criminal way.
0: Well, thank you. okay.
2: I wonder if you have run across or interviewed any of the young people who are pictured there in the memorial uh, about this because John Stokes, who's one of the uh, individuals, one of the students mm-hmm. here, will be in Williamsburg at one of our high schools speaking on June the 6th. Oh, really? He's written a book called Students on Strike, yes. which was about the story of this. And he and at least one other one are trying to spread the word because they're afraid it's kind of been paved over. And, of course, all students study about Brown versus Board, but they don't really know a lot of things mm. here. And um, so I know he's trying to... Uh, in his last years as he told me he says I'm pushing 80 <laughs> when I ask him to do a couple of presentations he says I only do one a week um, and I just wondered if you had interviewed any of them
1: I haven't interviewed John Stokes or John Watson and Barbara Johns of course passed away in the 1990s but I have interviewed a number of other students so no one in the memorial but, but other students yes but I have so much respect for the work that both John Stokes and John Watson did in the 60s and what they continue to do today to share this, to share this story. Thank you.